boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Binge Boys is a show that talks about streaming and other things, and you're listening to it right now. Hello, I'm Hal Rudnick, and sitting across from me on the Zoom is Juan Harris, the bearded menace. I'm not a menace. I'm a very nice boy. Oh, you are a nice boy. <laughs> I am bearded, though. I felt like I was uh, had a little momentum there, and I just said words. The fandom menace. I'm going to take down Star Wars from the inside. That's me. Oh, the fandom menace. Kathleen Kennedy, how dare you produce every movie I love. Right? Does fandom use that? Is there a fandom menace? I could be wrong. I'm sure people in the audience who are listening know all about this and are mad at me now. But I believe it was one channel. Like, there is a, an account out there called the fandom menace, but it's sort of become that whole group of Star Wars fans that are, they're agitated, they're upset. That, that has nothing to do with fandom, the, the, the parent company of Screen Junkies. My employer's fandom? No, they're not a menace. Yes, your employer, that's what I was They're asking. a delight, folks. Fandom.com, I can't say enough wonderful things <laughs> about the team from fandom, where fans make connections with fans. If you need a wiki. <laughs> Listen, for all of your Chewbacca background informational needs. Indeed. Juan, anything from deep within your personal life you'd like to talk about? You just want to chat about what's going on with, with me, me the guy? I just want to know if there's anything going on in your part of the world. Oh, you know, not really that much. Just working. I'm still not, like... Quarantine's like never gonna end for me, I guess. Like we're still not back to like yeah. an office anywhere. Like I'm starting to feel like everybody got used to getting my work in without having to look at my face. And like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be asked to come into an office again. I'm starting to feel like it's just not gonna happen. Like, <laughs> no, this is great. Like we get the work that we need, but we don't have that guy distracting us. Listen, you are the goat of working remote. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Like. I might just be in like a perennial state of lockdown. Like I'll get to, you know, mm -hmm. not wear a mask, which would be nice. <laughs> so I'm in a weird place right now where I, I kind of imagine that the lockdown would sort of have a an end and I would then feel like unlocked down. Sure. And like, you know, mm -hmm. I've been to a movie, I've been to a few restaurants, but like it does still feel like a lot of apartment time. Yeah. It's still a middle ground here. Taco loves it. Yeah, Taco wants Dad die around. Yeah, he's never alone. It's He's on cloud nine. Nice. How about you? Not just me putting on the spot. What's going on with your life? Well, um, a long time ago, an embarrassingly long time ago, my wife bought me for a past birthday a Papa shop that you'd have in sort of like an arcade-style basketball shooting game that keeps score for you. Got it. Okay. Yes. I was hoping you were going to explain what a Papa shot was and you did. It's like kind of like an at-home version of what you might find at Dave and Buster's. A little less elaborate than right. that. Right. Maybe not the full size that you get in arcade, but one of those, the ball comes down and then you try to see how many shots oh, yeah. you can make in, I, I'm guessing, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever. Yep. I got really enamored with Papa shots when I saw a friend of mine had one. And, but I did not put it together. I would put it together in fits and starts. I made a lot of progress over the pandemic and then I just stopped. But I finally finished the Papa shot and I am like Steph Curry in the backyard. I have to say, and I don't, you know, great gift. I'm not trying to knock it, but yeah, it feels a bit like Guitar Hero where it's like, it's not making you better at the actual game of basketball. Or is it? Am I wrong about that? Because I feel like making an actual basketball shot is harder. It's farther away. It's higher up. Oh, yeah. So getting really good at Papa shot only makes you good at Papa shot. I think think so, but the spatial reasoning involved in like a set shot. So maybe like from a muscle memory place. Yes, but the only marketable skill there is just pop a shot, not actual hoops. And I remember, I think it was uh, Jimmy Kimmel had LeBron James on uh -huh. the show. And then he had just like some tiny dude who was awesome at pop a shot and went against LeBron James in pop a shot. And a tiny dude who was awesome at Papa Shot destroyed LeBron James. So that's what I mean. Like it's it's like being you know like if you were really good at Guitar Hero, you could probably beat Slash at the game. Like it doesn't mean you're a better guitarist than Slash. Yes. Although maybe I don't know you. 
November Rain, pretty sick. But like, maybe you could do better. I don't know. But you'll never beat Slash in a Who Looks Better in a Top Hat contest. <laughs> no one ever has. He's the undisputed world champion. It's in Guinness, folks. <laughs> you know, you're only at S tier top hat wearing when your top hat has its own belt. <laughs> He's got like a Texas belt with buckles on it. On the top hat. Next level. He's in a pantheon all his own. Lon, we've, uh, we're having too much fun. Let's get to the news. Da -da 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 Here's the news with Lon. Well, Slash is in the news. No, I'm kidding. Slash is not. I wish Slash was in the news more. Oh, the new GNR Why does anime? Slash's Snake Pit have its own animated series or something at this point? I don't know. Oh, hell Slash. yeah. Slash. Did you ever go to that bar in Hollywood, Slash's? The Snake Pit Bar. Uh, I have not. I have not been to Slash's Bar. I've heard of it. I don't know if it's still open anymore. That was like the center of the Sunset Strip, where I don't. No one from LA really goes and like hangs out there. Oh no, that Slash had a bar on Melrose. Oh, was Slash's place on Melrose. I don't know. I don't. I don't hang out at cool well, places. We all know that you only hang out in your apartment. You yeah, as I just said, yeah. <laughs> No, but even when I go to a bar, it's a place like Pete's Bar, like for sad middle-aged people. Like I don't go to a, I don't go to like <laughs> cool bars with like celebrity names. Anyway, our top story has nothing to do with Slash, but it does have to do with Jerry Seinfeld, who I've never seen in a top oh. hat. It's hard to even imagine okay. Jerry Seinfeld wearing a top hat. Try to picture it. It's weird. I mean, I could see him for a bit in a top hat and tail. I mean, what is the deal with top hats? Is it a top or is it a hat? Ooh. Jerry Seinfeld is writing, starring, and directing the film. It's called uh, Unfrosted, and it is based on a joke that he told on stage about Pop-Tarts. Basically, the joke was, uh, <laughs> what is the deal with Pop-Tarts? So it was like, come on, do the, do the impression. Uh, I'm trying to think about exactly how the joke, the joke, it's, you know, it's, it's something like, uh, how do you come up with the idea for the Pop-Tart? It's a, it's a rectangle pastry. I, I got to take it out of the foil. I, I put it in the toaster. I mean, what's going on? Who are these pastries? Something along those lines. Thank you. Good work. Lon, quick question. When and if you eat a Pop-Tart, do you eat it cold or you toast it? Are people eating raw tarts? You got you to gotta toast that. Hell yeah. No, I'm only raw tart. I'm only raw tart. Oh, that's gross. You gotta toast that bad boy. Okay, okay. You and I part ways on that. I think you can eat it however you like. Pop-tarts are one of those things that I love, but I don't eat regularly because grown sure. man trying, not not always doing a good job, trying not to eat just garbage. But uh, every yes. once in a while, I will buy a package of Pop-tarts like as a little treat. Mm -hmm. And I notice now, on the back of boxes of Pop-Tarts, they have like four different ways to, to prepare your tarts. Like they're they're telling you here are the ways that you can. One of them is, is raw dogging it, which I think is gross, just straight out of the foil. Mm -hmm. One of them, yeah. toasting, traditional, delicious, the preferred method. One of them, freezing your Pop-Tarts. Oh. And the other one, microwaving your Pop-Tarts. Now, both of those seem uh -huh. suboptimal. The microwave one, you do it for like two seconds at a time and then you have to check it because if you leave it in, like it'll burn right away. Oh, just disintegrate, melt. It's like hazardous. Like, why would you even recommend this to people? Take it out of the foil. Take it out of the foil if you microwave it. <laughs> you got to take it out of the foil, folks. But then also, uh, I haven't even tried freezing one because that just sounds... Dis that's disgusting. Why? Who wants that? I mean, I like frozen candy bars. It's and a stuff. pastry. I like, a, I like who, you, what? Like who, yeah, what? What? Yeah. Give know. me an example of a pastry that you freeze before eating. Mm, um, I'm I'm at a loss. Exactly. You can't. That's stupid. So anyway, don't yeah. get it. Don't like it. What are you doing, Kellogg's? But. Jerry Seinfeld's going to make a Pop-Tarts film. He's co-writing it with Spike Ferriston, uh, who's a former Seinfeld writer, and Barry Martyr. Those two guys also wrote B-Movie with Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, I have a pitch for them if they're listening. Spike Ferriston, Jerry Seinfeld, if you're listening, how about an arch-villain named Henrik Klemner who invented the toaster <laughs> Oh, Mr. Pop-Tart, I'm coming for you. I will dominate the world with my strudel. Though clearly the toaster strudel was invented many years after the initial strudel, still German. They kept it in the family. Because mm -hmm. like anybody could have invented the toaster strudel. It's like strudel had gone around the world by that yeah, point. But no, the Germans were the only ones making strudel innovations. We've revolutionized the strudel. The strudel. <laughs> 
let's talk about some trailers. We got a bunch of new yeah. trailers. Uh, I definitely want to talk about all of them. The first one, Turner and Hooch. Disney Plus has made a TV show. But here's the thing. I assumed, as I think all of us naturally did, that when we heard Disney's making a Turner and Hooch show, then it would just be a remake. It's like, okay, yes. you'll get some young guy to play a cop. The and then role. he gets yeah. this, this dog that becomes his partner, Turner and Hooch. And we kind of do have that. We do. But they're going... They don't need to do this, but they've made this elaborately a true sequel to the 1989 original. The Josh Peck is playing Tom Hanks' son. The original Turner is dead. For some reason, they thought, kill him off instead of just he's off screen. So obviously, Tom Hanks didn't want to come back. Yes, they they must have gone out to Hanks. And he's like, I'm sure they asked Hanks if he'd do an episode. And he said he didn't want to. So they just killed him off screen. But they, they did go to the trouble of saying, this is not the original Hooch because it's too long ago. That that Hooch is long dead. Oh, yeah. But this is another dog that he adopted that reminded him of Hooch. Felt Hooch-like mm-hmm. that he's now left to his son as an inheritance as the son is training to become a police officer like his old man. And now, in, in this very extra-complicated way, we have a Turner and Hooch show. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, it looks real upbeat and dumb. I thought it looked, you know, almost unwatchable. (laughs) It just feels like they're counting on a lot more affection for Turner and Hoots than I feel like anyone has. Like, I think everybody, that's a title that people remember. I think you could get Tom Hanks' dog comedy, maybe even Cops in there if you really quizzed people. But I don't feel like people really remember Turner and Hooch well. They're banking on a lot of Hooch heads. A lot of Hooch heads. Also, like, they even brought, like, Reginald Vell Johnson, you know, dad from Family Matters. He was a diehard. Carl Winslow, of course. Of course, yes. He's like a cop in the original Turner and Hooch. He's back. He's playing the mayor now. Oh, my. Which means he's reprising his role from Turner and Hooch. Before Family Matters, before Die Hard. That guy was in some classic stuff. Was he a cop in Family Matters as well? Yeah, Carl Winslow was a cop. He always played a cop. Oh, my God. So um, some people say ACAB, all cops are bastards. Uh, I say— Not Carl Winslow. Um, I say a uh, Carve all cops are Reginald Bill Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> played a lot of cops. He played a lot of cops in his day. I guess it was just Die Hard. People were like, I believe that. Bring him back. Bring him back and more stuff. <laughs> he shot a kid, but it's okay because then he also shoots the bad guy in the end. Redemption. That's that's how redemption works. Who, who's the guy in The Outsider and uh, Joker? Who, Bill... Uh, Bill Camp. Bill Camp. Bill Camp, yes. B- Bill Camp and Reginald Vell Johnson. Um, uh, just always cops. Always cops. You know, Lon, uh, Bill Camp... And Reginald Vell Johnson, as far as playing cops, both of them may be getting too old for this shit. Probably. I mean, that Danny Glover's line also played a lot of cops. So, yeah, Turner and Hooch. (laughs) So that's it for Turner and Hooch, I guess. I don't know. I mean, listen, they're putting it up on Disney+. Plus. A lot of people already have Disney+. Plus. I'm sure there are a lot of people who fondly remember that movie. It'll probably do well. I just feel like... This is one of those properties where, you know, they're counting on this, like, nostalgia for it that I don't know is there. Yeah, and I don't know. Folks love dogs, so I guess that's a thing. It's just like Mighty Ducks I get. Like that, okay, there's a lot of residual nostalgia for that. Oh, yeah, that's got a lot of nostalgia, and that's a little little closer in time. I think, is Turner and Hooch from the 80s? 89, 1989. Yeah. The trailer looked really cheesy. Like, there's this one moment where Turner meets a potential love interest, I guess, who's, like, a, also a dog trainer. And, like, she's just, like, doe-eyed at him. She's like, duh, oh. Like, and it's just, like, so over the top. Girls don't do that when they talk to you all the time on the street? No. I mean, I, I feel like it's just every day. This cause... woman has, like, a visible lady boner yeah, for I mean, Turner. Yeah, I mean, that might be a Hal Rudnick issue. Maybe you should. Maybe it is. You know, maybe maybe I, I need to. Uh... It's because you're always leading with what? 
wife talk. I think that's why. Maybe, maybe, but I don't want to give anyone. The, the ladies are like, oh, spoken for. Don't get doe-eyed over this one. I know. I'm a, I'm a real Mike Pence when it comes to that stuff, <laughs> ladies. I don't want any temptation. Look be, at the ring. Won't Look be alone ring. in a room with one. Like, oh, mother, mother would mother. not like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's Turner and Hooch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we got to talk about this one. Q-Force is the name. It's an adult animated comedy from Sean Hayes. He is a co-creator, he's a producer, and he's the voice of uh, the lead character. Other voices, Gary Cole, David Harbour, Patty Harrison, Laurie Metcalf, they're like international archer-type super spies. They're Mm -hmm. all LGBTQ. Now, this has been very divisive online. It does have some prominent LGBTQ voices behind it. Yes. Nonetheless, a lot of gay people are coming out and saying that they are they're not down with this. It looks like it's trafficking in a lot of stereotypes. There are concerns that this may spark homophobia because it seems to play into so many uh, old-fashioned ideas about what it meant to be gay. And the the last complaint that I saw was it's like it feels like a lot of the characters are defined by their queerness as opposed to being characters who are gay. They're just like, these characters are the gay jokes. Ha ha. It looks like it's designed to be very over the top and, right. uh, you know, just bombastic in that way and fabulous and fantastical, you know, not based in reality. You know, like you said, kind of a larger than life archer type world. I got that vibe as well. It's a very wacky comedy and you can tell it's self-aware. It's not, yes. it's not making these jokes like nobody's ever made them before. It felt to me like it's owning it. Like, well, these are all the ugly stereotypes about us and we're going to turn them into hilarious jokes and laugh along with them at how silly it all is. Right. I can see both sides of it. Is it going to be fun or or is it going to be regressive for the cause, so to speak? A lot of the comedy of sort of the late 90s, the early aughts was like this. Mm -hmm. It was sort of this post-racial, like we can laugh about things like misogyny and racism because they're old. Like now we can be ironic and self-aware about it and laugh at how Mm -hmm. those old-fashioned people. But now when you go back and listen to a lot of that comedy, it grates on the ears because it's obvious that the irony was just an excuse to make gay jokes and fat jokes. Yeah, I think a lot of stuff on The Office plays that way. And like 30 Rock has had a few moments like this. uh, A lot of those kinds of shows. Like I would say SNL's ambiguously gay duo, a lot of that is less palatable uh, today. We like to think that we've sort of put this stuff behind us, but we really haven't. And so Mm -hmm. we're not ready to make the jokes about it because it's still, you know, very real. Like it's still a day-to-day reality for gay people that there's a lot of intolerance out there. So I think maybe it, it feels weird to make jokes about it when so many people are still just living it. Yeah, and not just the, like the day-to-day intolerance, just like laws being put on the books that are um, holding back trans people and trans rights. Trans people just got their right back to serve in the military after those rights were attacked by the last administration. So listen, we may never live in the fucking utopia we all dream of. Um, to me, it looked like fun, but I totally can see how it might hit different for people. There's a lot of very funny people involved, which makes me think that it will be better than maybe this this trailer lands. And I mean, you know, Gabe Liebman's worked on a lot of things that I think are are very good. Big Mouth and Kroll Show and like stuff Mm -hmm. that I really like. So... Who knows? The jury is out for me. But that's that's kind of the debate going around about that trailer. Uh, we've got one more to talk about. Yeah. Sexy Beasts. Yes. This is a reality <laughs> dating show. The concept is uh, a single person is going to go out on three blind dates and then pick the person that they want to continue seeing. But on all the blind dates, everybody's dressed up in elaborate makeup and prosthetics that make them look like furries. I mean, I'm going to, they were saying Mm -hmm. animals and creatures, but we all know they look a lot like like furries. Or miniature versions of the masked singer. Right. We're seeing a lot of shows that are sort of built around elaborate costumery these days. And I think that's definitely the masked singer effect that people like it. It's funny. It's a gimmick. It's very visual, good for advertising. uh, And it just catches your eye. You want to see these crazy costumes. Hey, let me get 
unpolitically correct here. Oh, my God. Look, we, uh, we, Chow, we don't want to get canceled by a woke mob. Sorry. Oh, um, my, oh, here we go, folks. You know, everyone was so handsome and beautiful, like, that they showed without, the, I without their masks on. I had this and exact like, thought. You know, if you really want to roll the dice with, like, oh, am I going to be happy with the person I chose? Throw a couple of fucking uggos in there. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. There needs to be more of a <laughs> Russian roulette element. I think one of the three people they're trying to hook you up with has got to be a, a butterface because you can tell. Yeah. You can tell what the body looks like. It's just the face that you can't see. Everyone's body was booming. Everyone had chiseled features. Great. It's a reality dating show, so that everybody obviously looks terrific. Like put. Like, put everyone in one of those giant sumo suits or whatever. Maybe that, but I also think you could do the everybody has a nice body, but, you know, you got one out of three's got to be a butterface. Yeah, throw fucking Quasimodo in there or something. I don't know. Or a butt is, a butt is, what's the male version of a butterface? But his face. An uggo. Yeah, it's a fucking uggo. And, like, listen, who's to judge what an uggo is? One person's uggo is another person's uh, fucking uh, um, Harry Hamlin. Well, I mean, in this case, it would be the producers of Sexy Beast. They yes, would the producers they of would Sexy Beast who are the an ones uggo. who would judge. Uh, one other thing I want to bring up about this. Yes. Some of the costumes, it doesn't seem like it's totally fair. Like, you could kind of see what the devil lady looks like under her devil lady face, but then, like, praying mantis is like, I, you could be anybody under that. Oh, yeah, the dolphin face. Yeah. Right. That's, like, some of the costumes are doing more work than the others. Tune in to see how they react when the masks come off. This is the masked fuckers. <laughs> the masked uggos. The masked sex havers. There you go. I think that I think you've got one. I think you've got one. There. Oh, what's like, the name of the show? This show is Sexy Beasts. Sexy Beasts. Like that movie, that Ben Kingsley Ray Winstone movie. Yes, Sexy. I Beasts. wish this one was about like we've got eight British gangsters and they've got to break into this vault. <laughs> like that should be on a double bill with the Limey, with Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Yeah, they're both angry, angry, yelly old British guys. Angry Brits yeah. of a certain age. That's it for trailers. Let's move on. Yes. Uh, Steven Spielberg's Amblin Partners signed a deal. They're going to produce a few films a year for Netflix. People are making a big deal of this, like, oh, Spielberg movies going to Netflix now. What a sellout. And it's like, come on. But he did shit talk that before, right? I mean, he wasn't just like, fuck Netflix, bro. He made some very mm -hmm. specific points. One was that everything is sort of algorithmic. Things kind of get lost in there. Like it limits what filmmakers can do and how you can learn about what happens. Like, like from a producer standpoint, he was saying Netflix just doesn't tell anybody what the numbers are, how anything did. So as a filmmaker, you really have no way of knowing if you're connecting with an audience. And as an audience member, you really have no idea what other people are watching. Like it, it stifles communication. Yes. And then the other point he made is he doesn't think movies that debut on streaming services should be eligible for Oscars. He thinks to be eligible for an Oscar, you should have to screen in movie theaters. So is he basically going to dump his shit onto Netflix yes. and then release his yes. um, his Oscar bait in the yeah. theaters? The, the, the big movies <laughs> will still come out through Universal. He's still got a theatrical deal through Universal. So like Spielberg right now is making a movie that's inspired by his childhood. It's like autobiographical. Yes. So that's going to come out in theaters. That's a Universal. Seth Rogen has been tapped. Seth Rogen's going to be right. Rooney Mara is in that one. That's going to come out in theaters. He's not sending that directly to Netflix. This is going to be Amblin makes a lot of stuff. They're a big they're oh, a big yeah. company. They've got three or four other films in the pipeline. Probably one or two of those will go to Netflix. It's just spreading it around. So these are produced by Amblin, but not necessarily all directed by Spielberg. No, Amblin makes a lot of movies, yep. many, most of which are not uh, directed by Spielberg. I mean, he's often a producer on them, but he's, I mean, at this point, you know, your your boy Steve is a is a mogul, essentially. Oh, I mean yeah. he's oh, he's yeah. got his name on all kinds of movies that he Oh, does. you mean DreamWorks Steve? DreamWorks Steve, as I call him, yeah. The the S in SKG. Remember when they were still Yep, Katzenberg and Geffen. Oh, here's uh something. I should just let this go. It was a thought I had two minutes ago while you were talking. Too late. Okay. <laughs> you Never brought mind. no, I mean, it's too late to let it go. You've brought it up. Let me hear. Oh, okay. You used the word algorithmic. And it made me think of the dumbest joke humanly possible. Algorithmic. 
I'm Vice President Al Gore. Are you ready to dance? Let's get Al Gore rhythmic. Wow, you really should have let that one die. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, holy shit, I'm, I'm surprised by I know. How the dumb extent was that? to How which you should have let Could that, that have gotten die. dumber? No. Uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, yes, I, I've got some examples. Your ridiculous interjection did give me a chance to look up some of the movies that yes. uh, Amblin has working right now that may go to Netflix. Oh. There's one with Corey Hawkins. We just saw him in In the Heights. Oh, my God. You said Corey, and I heard him. R.I.P. And I'm like, they can't make that No, movie. All right. Well, I guess with digital technology being <laughs> where it is. <laughs> I love Corey Haw- you, Hawkins. Also, Dr. Dre from Boys Dr. in the Hood. Dr. Dre from, no, from Straight Outta Compton. I mean, Straight Outta Compton, right. duh. Uh, I knew so exactly what he's I going to star in uh, a horror film called Last Voyage of the Demeter. It comes from, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Andre Orvredal. He's the Norwegian filmmaker behind Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, mm-hmm. uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Uh, so that's coming out from Amblin. That might go to Netflix. Uh, Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver are co-starring in a drama mm. called uh, The Good House from directors Maya Forbes and Wally Wolodarski. Uh, it's about a New England realtor who lives in Boston's North Shore, who is a raging alcoholic, and she tries to rekindle an old romance, presumably with... Kevin Klein. Hmm, okay. Anthony Ramos, we also just saw him in In the Heights. He was the star, Usnavi from In the Heights. He will be starring in a sci-fi comedy called Distant. He will play an asteroid miner who crash lands on an alien planet uh, and must deal with his new surroundings along with a uh, woman who's the only other survivor of the crash. Uh, They escape together. Aren't we having a lot of bad luck with sci-fi comedies lately? It's always been a tough needle to thread the sci-fi comedy, like especially some, the. I'm like, thinking of TV series. You got that HBO one. Uh, what was that uh, that came on after Avenue Week, Five? The yeah, Avenue yeah. Five, and, and then Space Force. I liked Moonbase Eight. I guess that wasn't really sci-fi. Moonbase Eight was fun. It had elements of that. It was pretty realistic, but yeah, nice slow burn with those dudes. I mean, I think sci-fi comedy is always tricky. It could get real cheesy. It could get sort of obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think. If Veers into sort of just parody a lot, but uh, yeah. when done well, like I, I enjoy it. Nice. I wish Anthony Ramos well. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm sure he appreciates that. Yes. Uh, finally, last bit of news: there are two hmm. different shows in the works, both about the Los Angeles Lakers basketball franchise. Wow. HBO, of course, working on a drama series with Adam McKay about the so-called Showtime era of the Lakers in the 80s. Yep. And now Netflix has ordered a workplace comedy series set in the Lakers front office. That one comes from Elaine Coe, formerly a Modern Family writer-producer. Uh, she's going to write this show, centers on the both personal and professional life of a fictional Lakers owner named Eliza Reed, but real Lakers executives Jeannie Buss and Linda Rambis are going to be on board as producers of the show. So that's interesting that they're just throwing their weight behind that uh, Jeannie Buss and Linda Rambis. Yeah, they're, they're teaming with the Lakers on a show about set in the Lakers office. Are actual Lakers going to be in this show? They haven't said that for sure, but I feel like the door definitely seen the the fact that Lakers executives are producing the show. Right. Leads me to believe that the reason you would do that instead of just making it some team name or whatever is because you yeah. want it to interact with the real Lakers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm assuming either, maybe even if it's not current Lakers, maybe great Lakers of the past would stop by, you know, you could get a, you could, you know, like James Worthy, like exactly who I was thinking. (laughs) Like get Uh, like a, get like a Robert Ori cameo. Oh, sure. Uh, Big Shot Rob. You know, Rick Fox is like waiting for that call. That handsome devil. Rick Fox is one handsome (laughs) son of a beast. It's a good looking man. Rick Fox, good looking man. Yeah. uh, Interesting. Uh, Or it could be like, we've had how many We've had, it's a mixed bag. You've had baseball movies like Major League and Little Big League or whatever, and they don't have actual Major League Baseball players. But then you have movies like, uh, uh, what was that one with Whoopi Goldberg played the uh, coach? Uh, Eddie. Uh, Eddie. 
Um, there were actual NBA people. Well, I mean, we're living in the Space Jam and New Legacy era when all all bets are off. Uh, NBA stars are plenty Mm -hmm. showing up in that one. Uncle Drew, who could forget the classic Uncle Drew? Oh, hell yeah. Kyrie Irving and and friends. Many a real NBA star showed his face. Oh, (laughs) yeah. You know what? I actually like that movie. Lil Rel, he... He's good in everything he does. It's fun. Uncle Drew is much more charming than you sort of think it's going to be. I agree. I'm more looking forward to the Adam McKay Showtime Lakers because that's just such a legendary team. And like, you know, cocaine was on every table you could find and the Lakers were. I I do think Bo Burnham as Larry Bird is a very funny, clever piece of casting. I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Yep. I like stuff filtered through the Adam McKay lens. So, yeah, that's it for the news. That's all I got. Nicely done. Coming up, we are going to talk about the new uh, Pixar offering on Disney Plus, Luca. Juan, we met these sea monsters, the merfolk of Luca, and did they swim away with your heart? I gotta be honest with you. I feel like this is a real letdown. It's it's not a total loss. It's not a terrible movie. But um, I don't know. I, I It really lacks what I think Pixar brings to the table as opposed to a DreamWorks or a Sony or like everybody else. Like this to me feels like any of the big animation studios could pretty much have put Luca together. The animation looks great. The water effects continue to blow me away. But yes. it kind of felt like a grab bag of ideas rather than there's no clean through line to Luca. There's no like this is what it's about and this is the journey and this is the idea that it's exploring. It's like a little bit of this sea monster out of water comedy stuff and a little bit of coming of age period drama stuff and then like a better off dead remake where it's like we got to win this bike race and save the rec center. And then mm-hmm. it was like, it was so much stuff. And I just felt like by the end, like none of it really was that satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I felt like it was fine. Like if you plop like a nine-year-old in front of this movie, I'm sure they'll enjoy it. But for me, it just kind of like went from zero to 60. It's like no world building. It's like, here are creatures. We're not going to tell you the rules of their lives or how they exist or why they do this, but uh, accept it and go on this ride. And I'm kind of like, oh, okay. Uh, And it it felt a little bit rushed. I'm glad it wasn't longer, though. I don't feel like it needs to be longer. It just needs focus. Like, if it's about this sea monster deciding he doesn't want to live in the world of the sea monsters, he he wants to be on land and he wants to become an astronomer, which is a a weird choice, then, like, great, fine, good, tell me that story. Mm -hmm. But it sort of starts telling you that story, but then it becomes very distracted by this bike race thing and his newfound love of the stars. And is he going to stay friends with his Vespa loving buddy or go study astronomy? And it's just like, I don't know what story it really wanted to tell. It feels like it wanted to put a story in this village and in that world of fifties Italy. And then beyond that, it was just like, well, how do we fill this scene? Oh, they could, Eat some pasta. How do we fill this scene? Oh, they... Is he Galileo or is he the bicycle thief? Yeah, like, it's just a little bit of everything. And it's like, Pixar is usually so good about everything is really carefully established. And there's no extraneous stuff. There's no fat. It's like everything sort of pays off and is there for a reason. Something like Coco or Inside Out, they're so figured out. and Lon, don't even... Be quiet and don't you even dare mention this movie in the same sentence as Inside Out. Uh, like not even close. Oh, it's like the world building and the storytelling and the characterization and everything really comes together. And it's like by the time the movie's over, you're like, "That's it." I get exactly where this was going and what this was saying. I feel like I've grown as a human being after watching Inside Out. It's not even just that. I mean, I agree, but it's also just the basic like cartoon stuff. Like one of the things that Pixar does so well is there's just a cleverness to it. Like if there's a chase scene, they're going to come up with three or four clever additional obstacles or touches that you didn't think of. Like Mm -hmm. in Toy Story 2, there's an entire sequence that's built around Andy has to walk gingerly across the stomach of the heavy set toy store owner, but he spilled Cheetos or cheese puffs all over himself. So he's Mm got to like like a minefield, like walk around them. Like that's the level of thought 
and cleverness and detail that go into the action scenes in Toy Story 2. And then in this movie, you've got this setup where it's like if the sea monsters get even a drop of water on them, it gives away their secret. And you think about all the stuff you could do just as a cartoon with a setup like that, and it feels like mm -hmm. they barely explore it at all. It's yeah, like there were a couple of moments here. It's and there. like, yeah, once in a while they get splashed and have to duck, but it's like that's your movie. Like, I don't know why we're spending so much time on pasta. You know what those sea monsters look like? Yeah, uh, do you remember sea monkeys? Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. It, those of you who read comic books of a certain era probably remember sea monkey ads in the back. If you're a youngster, look up sea monkeys and then look at the picture of the mer people from Luca. They said they based it on, and they show a few in the movie, those old Italian like mosaics and frescas depicting sea monsters. They show a few around the town in the movie. Listen, I don't care if you drink White Claw or Fresca. All I'm saying no, is- the Fresca is like, like the, the paintings. Fresca is like a painting on a wall. Okay, and here's one more thing, Lon. Throwing some art history at you now. I appreciate that. Uh, um, hey. Hey, Santa Mozzarella! I hated that, too. <laughs> the guy who made this is Italian. Like, it's semi-autobiographical for this guy. So why is the movie, it feels sometimes like it was written by, like, dopey, waspy dudes being like, what would an Italian person say? Like, Oh, saint and then the name of a cheese. Like, you know, like, mamma mia, abundanza. Like, there's tons of moments like that. It's just like, shouldn't this feel a little more authentico? It's like Olive Garden Italian. It is Olive Garden Italian. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the whole thing. Here's how the movie should have ended. Um, sorry to steal the bit from our friends at uh, Hishi, uh, how it should have ended. Not my friends. <laughs> um scientists in hazmat suits descend upon this village, um, throw these kids who are half myrrh, half human in the back of vans, and they die on an operating table being dissected. Well, there you go. Very dark. They're not half man, half myrrh. They're, they're fully sea monsters. They could just transform into humans. Like a half- Human in the streets, sea monsters in the sheets. Like a mermaid is half human, half fish. And that's not what this is. They don't have human upper body. Again, I don't know the rules here. But this is the other thing. It's not a good metaphor for tolerance either, by the way. Like I thought that was kind of where they were going, but mm -hmm. it would only be a good metaphor for tolerance if you were like a different race and you could like change your race when you came to America. Like, like they transform. Like you can't even tell that they're sea monsters when they're on land, they just become people. So there's nothing to tolerate. They don't actually have a difference. Like a good, yeah. an allegory for being different would be actually, um, you know, uh, being different. <laughs> Not, yeah. They're the same. They're, they look identical. The whole bit yeah, is- they were still scaly and like, oh, we have to accept these scaly people or something. Exactly, that's a metaphor for, yeah, it's, it would be like if the Sneetches could just rub the stars off their bellies. Like, no, you have, right. some have stars on their bellies and some don't, and now they gotta live together. Star-bellied Sneetch. Too bad Dr. Seuss was canceled and nobody gets that illusion. <laughs> what a shame. There was one very funny moment where Sasha Baron Cohen plays the uh, translucent uncle who's Ugo. like a fish from Ugo uh, from the very deepest depths of the ocean. And that's the funniest scene in the movie. And that scene lasted about a minute and a half. It expands our understanding of that version of the ocean as a world. And like, that's what... Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a real problem in terms of emotionally connecting to these characters that we don't really understand the stakes for any of them. Like, especially the parents. Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan voice Luca's parents, and mm. their only defining quality is that they're terrified of land and they don't want Luca to go above land. No, that's not true. Jim Gaffigan's character also, uh, like collects crabs or shows crabs. Oh, yeah. He's got mm -hmm. like a prize show crab, I guess. Yeah. I know nothing about the Murr world. Like, do people have jobs down there? Right, but so you can't sympathize with them because you can't see things from their perspective because like, well, what do they even want Luca to do? They just want him to live in this cave forever? Do they want him to go to underwater school? Do they have hopes and dreams for him? Like, what is their world and their worldview? It seems very limited. And if you haven't figured it out by now, uh, NBA fans, this movie is not about 
Dallas Maverick superstar point guard Luka Doncic. It's just about these flimsily drawn, flimsily drawn. They look, listen. They look, they're they're beautiful. I mean, yeah, flimsily they. characterized. <laughs> the, no, I know the movie too. looks fine. Uh, Luka, I would call it a lesser Pixar. It was fine. Your nine year old will enjoy it. It's available now on Disney Plus. Check it out. <laughs> Lon, we both watched a movie that you can find on HBO or HBO Max. It is from the artist and filmmaker Miranda July, who uh, I've only seen uh, me, you, and everyone uh, we know, or everyone you know. Me and you and everyone we know. Uh, which was very good. Um, Kajillionaires. Kajillionaires on HBO, HBO Max. It's just Kajillionaires, singular. Singular, yes. One kajillionaire. Um, strike that. It's because it's Richard Jenkins' line. Everybody wants to be a kajillionaire. There it is. Uh, and uh, great cast. Uh, Richard Jenkins, uh, Deborah Winger. Evan Rachel Wood. Evan Rachel Wood. Gina Rodriguez. And uh, I enjoyed this movie. There were a couple of things that held me back from fully getting on board the believability. Oh, get out of here with the believability. It's not supposed to be a fable. It's not, it doesn't have to be believable. It is a fable. It's taking place in an alternate heightened reality. Sure. It's an imagined Huntington Park, California. Uh, so uh, Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger play these uh, kind of uh, small time con artists that make a living, eke out a living, just stealing and cajoling and bamboozling people and taking advantage of situations, living below the law. And uh, Evan Rachel Wood, their daughter, is pulled into this lifestyle. And it, it is a bit of a fairy tale. It has that aspect. There's a very lovely love story and coming together between Evan Rachel Wood and Gina Rodriguez. I thought that was very sweet and well done. Here's one major problem that I have with this. If people lived the way Richard Jenkins, Deborah Winger, and Evan Rachel Wood lived, and they live in like this abandoned office and like very meager circumstances, they would smell. They would smell very bad and constantly, and they're always wearing like the same clothes. I think that needs to be addressed in the movie. They have a cleansing ritual. Like, they have a bathroom that they use. We see their hygiene. They're, they're, they're doing hygiene. I don't know. I felt like they were playing fast and loose with the hygiene rules. And, like, uh, when Gina Rodriguez is uh, going to be romantic with Evan Rachel Wood, I think um, she's like, okay, here's the scene I would have liked to have seen. You know what? I dig you. Uh, I think you're cool despite your uh, crazy upbringing. But you got to go... Take a fucking bath. I want to tell everybody out there, this is a great movie. Don't, don't listen. Don't listen to this stuff about, it's about smelly people who need to be told. That's, that's, that would, would kill the, would kill the mood. <laughs> For one of the lovers to tell the other that, that she needs to go. I like the movie. Clean herself. And, and they purposefully went out of their way to show that they do use a, a restroom. They, they are cleaning themselves. They're not. Yeah, they're dumping that weird foam. They're not just walking around, you know, with no bathing at all, uh, you know. Evan like, Rachel Wood is wearing the same goddamn tracksuit for the entire movie. I've known transient people. They're, they have a home. They live in this uh, office park. Yeah, an abandoned office. Listen, I've known people. It's not abandoned. They live there. It's They live in a converted office space. They pay rent. <laughs> it's not, you know. Listen, I wish there was the scene where Gina's like, mm, mm-mm, okay. The movie's not about how would you clean yourself if you lived in a converted office space? It's, it's, it's really, it's about, it's about family and the difference between your, your biological family that you're sort of stuck with and your found family and, and the, mm -hmm. the freedom that we all have to ultimately choose and how that's sort of part of the process of growing up and becoming an adult is that recognition that, you know, you, you have this family you were born into, but then you also have the option to go out into the world and find your people and find your community and your family. And it's very beautifully done. It's very touching. All four of these lead performances are phenomenal. I mean, you really, 
I love Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger as actors. I've been a fan of both of oh, them. Yeah. You hate them by the end of this movie. And I mm-hmm. love that it does not, it does, Miranda July does not cop out. Like, there's no part of her that is like, well, but deep down, I do want you to love all of these people. Like, she makes them awful and she gives you insight into how awful they are. And she's not afraid to make some of her main characters uh, kind of despicable and to stay true to that. And I, I think that's really impressive. And I think that is absolutely a nice catalyst for Evan Rachel Wood to, you know, uh, blossom um, by the end of the movie a little bit and find uh, a new level in her life. Will there be moments where you're like, would that guy smell? Maybe that guy would smell. Sure. Fine. Okay. (laughs) I I just, I, thank you. I really was, I'm afraid that you're going to leave people with the idea that this movie's about dirty hobos or something. And, and it's, it's not at all. That's not at all the, the vibe of the film. Listen, but these people are on the fringes of hygiene. But besides that... They're living on the fringes. That's part of the idea. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying I've known people... How? Do you need a place to stay? Is that what this is coming down to? I've known people who have lived on the fringes. I'm sleeping under the 101 tonight, folks. I'm the man. House from the streets. Listen, I don't wish that on anybody. But um, the odor and hygiene aside... The, uh, I, I absolutely agree with Lon. There's some lovely themes and there's some well-done, inventive, interesting, fun uh, subject matter and minutia. In yeah, the, it's very funny, too. It's, yes, it absolutely is. Um, and it's definitely got like a super fun indie vibe. Richard Jenkins has just been, like since The Visitor, I think, he's just like so good. In, and and before that, yeah. like- No, I mean, he's, yeah, he's been great in, in movies for forever. Yeah. And in Six Feet Under and like, yeah, and, and just so much. But he's kind of like, I feel like I've only known Richard Jenkins as an older actor. I, I don't know if I- Yeah, well, I think in the, in the sort of the aughts, he had this moment where he started getting a little slightly bigger roles and more prominent films. The Visitor certainly one of them, but even stuff like Step Brothers, you know, like showing up oh, in more yeah. mainstream, stuff like that in, in, in somewhat more prominent roles, in addition to the well-received, you know, indie stuff and those I mean, performances. He's just- he raises the level of everything he's in. And yeah, Cabin in the Woods, he did that one too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Deborah Winger, who's like famously, their documentary about how Hollywood kicks aside women of a certain age uh, searching for Deborah Winger, you know, it, it's wonderful to see her. And because she was uh, just on a, a real winning streak in the early mid-80s. So um, that's enjoyable. And they both, yeah, like Lon said, uh, Miranda July was not afraid to take the characters down a, a darker path um, just as far as being likable. And yeah, I would say this, you know, I would rank this slightly below me, you and everyone we know uh, just as far as like just resonating with me. I thought that was a really beautiful film and funny, um, but yeah, absolutely worth checking out. It's on HBO. It's on HBO max. And one of my favorite things in this movie can, Lon, is it giving away too much to talk about the name of Evan Rachel Wood's character, or should I leave that as a discovery? I leave that, leave that. I think that's a fun, that's a fun moment. Yeah, but I'm telling you, it is the story behind it. It's very fun. And then just every time you hear it. It's Jenkins' delivery. It's the throwaway way he says it. Yeah. (laughs) It's so good. And Evan Rachel Wood's character's journey it's heartbreaking and touching. And even though she's kind of like super weird, it's very human. And like it resonates just like her her burgeoning sexuality and her becoming just more of a sensitive creature, a more sensitive person. It is very touching. And I, I agree with you. This is a a very good movie. I, I think I liked it maybe a little less than you did. I'm bringing you around. I also feel yeah. like new podcast pitch. Tell me what you think of this. You and I, each week, we pick a different actress and you describe their burgeoning sexuality. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. And you know what? I would try to do it in an even-handed way that would still <laughs> yeah. allow them their agency that wouldn't over-sexualize them. <laughs> right. I think that's what you do so well. That's why I think you should do it more. You're very, mm. you're very mm. sensitive. I hope so. When describing a, a young woman's, uh, you know, that special time in every young woman's life. It really was touching because she, the family that she's with in this movie, it's like, it's kind of loveless and just 
really mercenary in the way yeah. they go about things. And then seeing seeing her character growth, it's it's done in a beautiful way. So, uh, Kajillionaire, HBO, Miranda July. Uh, she's uh, she's kind of a visionary, Miranda July. Like, very much sure. um, making films and, and creating art, you know, with her own distinct voice. So, definitely worth checking out. Also watch uh, The Future, How Check that one out by her. Another good Miranda July movie that's out. I'll mark it down because I'm interested. I like, I like the tone she brings All to right. movies. Good stuff. And uh, just back on Netflix, everyone's favorite gentleman thief. Lupin. Um, so this was season two or the other half of season one. This is the second half of season one. Yes. Ten episodes total. They just divided it into two parts. So two five-part chunks that they're calling part one and part two. But I feel like you could really tell it, it doesn't so much feel like a new season as it does the conclusion of what we already had seen. Oui, très bien. Uh, and Lupin, it's delicious. It's very satisfying. But then I think when you dig in a little bit, it's like, okay, everything does work out conveniently. Do you ever have that feeling when watching this show? Well, I have to say, I thought the first half was more active. It was like, he's got all these plans and you're seeing it unfold, but then you're discovering that there's this other level to it and all this other stuff. And, and it, it felt more like that fun kind of energy heist sort of vibe. And the second half, it's very much like he's back on his heels and they're Pellegrini and all these people are coming for him. Mm -hmm. I thought it was not only just like that's kind of less interesting, but yeah, it relied a lot more on like he's just constantly like weaseling out of everything. Like it felt less like making elaborate, clever plans and then we see how it unfolds and it's more like – oh, no, I was able to get out of that because I set this behind the door the day before. And it's like, oh, okay. It's just less satisfying to me on a fundamental level to like, they were chasing me, but I got away. Like, mm, well, good for you. Yeah, it's like there's this big chase scene that happens uh, at the end where they find out, oh, Lupin is in this location. And it's just like, you would think he'd get boxed in. <laughs> but like <laughs> he just happens to just turn and go and there's no one coming from the other direction. Like there's always a fully clear other direction for him to run in. Part of it is like, that's the character. And it's like, you know, like that James yes. Bond thing. Like he always has to be yes. totally unflappable and like you can't mix him up. And I thought this was interesting because they mentioned it in part two that mm -hmm. in the actual Lupin books, he couldn't use Sherlock Holmes's name because Conan Doyle's estate still owned it. Uh, so mm. he gave Lupin a nemesis name like Smurlock Schmomes or something like like an obvious oh. name that was supposed to be Sherlock Holmes because that's the level that Lupin is working on like he's that yes. good that he's like Sherlock Holmesian in his ability to plan these capers so I get like he's always got to get away that's like built into the character but I, I, you're right that it, it sometimes didn't feel like it was they they weren't always clever about it sometimes he's just like getting away like or it just gets lucky or somebody comes along and rescues him at the right moment but i will say th there's much to love about the show omar sai is extremely charismatic and fun to watch at this point it's like 85 percent of it is just omar sai is very charming and it's fun to follow his escapades absolutely and he's believable as this guy that is just you know, thinks a step ahead of everyone and has it all planned out. So that's very fun to watch. Also, uh, you know, this is old news because this the same thing was done in the first half of the season uh, that was released. But I love the uh, going back to 1995 and seeing young Lupin. The kid, like him as a kid. Yeah, yeah, seeing him as a kid. And I think that's done so well in this show. It's very balanced in that way. They give you just enough, I yeah. feel like. You don't feel like you spent too much time with the kids. And they found a kid that not only looks a lot like Omar Sam, but they, like, they've like they coordinated their performance as well. Like they make, they, they make the same smile and they have a lot of the same like expressions. and. Uh, well, that, but I, I enjoy all of the young actors who are playing the younger versions of um, Lupin's uh, the mother of his kid, and uh, no, his name is not actually Lupin. He's inspired by Lupin. His name's oh, Assan. Well, yeah, um, uh, Assan. Assan Diop. Yeah. Uh, so it does that well. I love that. And this is just as a like as a sneaker guy. I love that Lupin is always wearing Jordans. Jordan. He's a huge Jordan One enthusiast, yeah. and um, with several different colorways on display. 
And I, I enjoy the scenes also duh, where uh, either young Lupin or old Lupin, uh, and it's not like constant through the show, but I like them calling out uh, the racism in uh, France and wherever that like occurs in the story. And uh, I think Lupin is a, uh, they, they do a nice job of that as well, uh, especially in the, with the violin and uh, everything there, uh, the subject, and which is one of the storylines in one of the episodes. So, um, yeah, but you do have to suspend disbelief because it's like, oh, he would have died there. He would have got caught there. Oh, what about the uh, the fucking goth kid they bring in? I like that bit. I like the kid. I like the bit. But then again, really, would he be able to snooker uh, this? Uh, well, the one thing I thought was a stretch is the way they, they at one point they're like, we need to recruit one more person. This is a three person job and there's only two of us. And their their method, like they're like the way to find somebody is they go to the library. <laughs> And they hang out in like the the I, I don't know the I they, the Lupin section, yes. which I believe there's like five books, so I don't think it has its own section. But I yeah. first edition mystery whatever they hang out in yeah. like this exclusive part of the Parisian library where you would only go if you were looking for these old school high level Lupin works, I guess. And then they literally just wait for people to come browse the books and then they like, is this the one? I don't know if this is our guy. And then, but like the third person, they're like, this is the one. And it turns out to be a brilliant uh, con artist who like is totally happy to work with them. And it's like bonkers. Like, well, like obviously that would not be a fan. Like the idea that if you're a fan of reading these books that automatically translates into wanting to be involved in an elaborate caper, Seems like a real leap. Like the allegory there is like, oh, I like to read serial killer books. Don't look under my right. house. Uh, yeah, I was going to say like, whatever. I like to read a lot of like, you know, like mysteries, but I don't want to like, I'm not a good detective. I couldn't like solve your case like Poirot, but I've read a lot of those stories. Yeah, I like to read Penthouse Forum, but I haven't had a bus full of bikini models break down in front of me. Of course, God, I'm such an obvious. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, sorry. No, uh, I don't mean that. It, I don't mean the joke is obvious. I mean that, that that's where your brain would go. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, they don't call me Hal Low Hanging Fruit <laughs> for nothing. Uh, so yeah, I agree. This is just maybe slightly below the first half, but there is a resolution. It's interesting. Well, this and, feels um, like the season finale. Like now we get to the end of this arc and we'll presumably, it has been renewed. So it'll come back for part three with yeah. a new caper and a new a new target. That's what I'm ready for. Because I felt like Asan Diop, he got, his family got done dirty by Pellegrini. So we, we had to see this through, but uh, I'm so ready for a next adventure. You know what I mean? I sure. felt like, okay, we spent a lot of time kind of rehashing the same shit. Yeah, it feels like 10 episodes is like enough for this story and we're definitely ready to sort of move on to something new. I feel like it could have been more balanced. Like it felt like the first half of the season was Asan's going to get back at Pellegrini and then season two was like, well, now Pellegrini is going to get back at Asan. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. okay, like that second half is just less interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, so Lupin, the second half of the first season, uh, five episodes available on Netflix now for streaming. Lon, uh, those are the shows that we agreed to watch and talk That's about. That's it. I think nothing else. Yep. We'll, we'll put a button on it there. Um, hoot hoot, Owl Nation. I mean, I always watch a lot more stuff, but I'm giving you time to catch up. Thank you, Lon. I appreciate it. We should watch Glitch in the Matrix. Did you watch that one? I told you. About not that. yet. Not yet. Watch that on Hulu for next week. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it for next week. It's yeah. the documentary that asks the question: Are we living in a simulation, or is the oh world God, real? I'm, I'm too scared. I'm too scared to find out. Um, but I'll check it out. Let's uh, let's maybe talk about that next week. For okay? sure. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, shout out to all my Gahooligans in Owl Nation. Uh, shout out to Starburns Audio. Travis Reeves, our super producer, holding it down. Appreciate you, Travis. Jason K., thank you for the sweet licks. 
heading into the show. And Lon, if you want to tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, find me on Twitter at L-O-N-S. Also, uh, check out Rotten Tomatoes as the Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast, where people come on and yes. yell at them about Rotten Tomatoes scores that are unfair to the movies. And uh, I'm on, uh, I, I think it'll be this week, so I think that should line up. Uh, I'm on the podcast this week talking about Armageddon, uh, of the, the great Michael Bay classic Part yeah. of the Criterion Collection that shockingly wow. came in with a 38%, uh, a rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I hope you set them straight, Lon. I also, I, I was on that show a while back. We have it out. We have it out about that. So check that out. Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. The same platform where you're listening to Binge Boys will also have that podcast. Indeed. And uh, you want to plug the newsletter or anything like uh, that? They've heard it every week. It's fine. Read my newsletter. All right. Get his newsletter. Find him on Twitter. And uh, I am at Hal Rudnick, H-A-L-R-U-D-N-I-C-K, on all the socials. And you can uh, jump on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Hal Rudnick. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you another time and uh, so on and so forth. Bye-bye. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys. Bitch boys, bitch boys, how I make money. Bitch boys, bitch boys, bitch in the fuck out of shit.